Well, this morning's main Bible reading is from Luke 9. We're going to start from verse 51 and then read all the way to 10.24. So Luke 9, reading from verse 51. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord, of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the labourer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fell like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, 
but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Well, in a minute we're going to have a look at that passage. Before we do, there's just a couple of things to say. I want you to know that questions is going to come after the sermon. So if you have any questions, be thinking about what they might be uh, as we reflect on this passage. There's a sermon outline that you can use if you wish in your handout. And then most importantly, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, We have the opportunity once again to reflect on... Um, this journey that your son took to Jerusalem. We pray, Lord, as he sets his face to that, we would enjoy the ride as we see him uh, teach his disciples and prepare them and um, enter different cities and tell them about the arrival of the kingdom of God. We pray, Lord, as we hear the warnings, we take those warnings on board. We pray, Lord, that we would be uh, among those who are keen to Follow Jesus without exception. Amen. At what point can you sit back and evaluate the last evangelistic event and conclude that it was a success? Is it at the point that a thousand non-Christians attend the event itself? Or do you have to wait? Is it when you perceive that about 500 people actually appear to be listening to what's being said? Or is it a bit later on when 250 people sign up for the follow-up course? Or is it when 150 of the 250 that signed up for the following course actually attend? Or is it when 100 of the 150 who attend complete the follow-up course? Or is it when 25 of the 100 people who completed the course now attend the church? Surely that's the point at which you can evaluate that the mission was a success. 25 new Christians have now joined the church. Now, the example is a little bit ridiculous, and the numbers are a little unrealistic, particularly for our context. But hopefully, the example still works. And the question is, what's the goal of evangelism? Is it to hold events? that are well attended? Or is it about taking people from the position of unbeliever to believer? Or maybe there's something else altogether going on. However we answer that question, will shape our motivation for evangelism and also shape our method of evangelism. 
Well, today we're in Luke 9, 51 to 10, 24. And in Luke's gospel, we arrive at a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is about to begin a journey. And we see the beginnings of it in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I think there's a tendency that we could miss this verse because it seems to be simply a point of geography. And we use the sections of the gospel beginning with, and he came to Nazareth, and he went down to Capernaum, and he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and so on. But this statement found in 9 verse 51 is more than just geographical. This has a theological significance. God's chosen king is heading to Jerusalem. And it's here that his ministry will culminate. And so preparations need to be made. People need to be told. Because when God's king sets his face to Jerusalem... It means the kingdom of God is near. That Jesus is going to Jerusalem raises the question of what sort of reception will he receive when he arrives. We can ask, will what has happened so far give us any clues? If you remember back at the start of Jesus' ministry when he goes to Nazareth, back in chapter 4, he's rejected. We see in our immediate context, the first village that his uh, messengers arrive at, they're not received. The messengers go ahead of him to prepare a way for him to the Samaritan village, and they're rejected. What will happen then when he finally arrives at Jerusalem? Jesus also attempts to rally up some more recruits. And interestingly, the new recruits will join his disciples who seem to have adopted the role that was once filled by John the Baptist. They are to be messengers who are sent ahead to him to make preparations. Just have a quick look at 9 verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. It sounds very similar to what we read, or read back in 7 verse 27. This is of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And as representatives of Jesus, how they are received will demonstrate whether or not the city will receive Jesus. If the city receive them, they're told the good news, which is the kingdom of God is near. 
If the city doesn't receive them, then they're told the bad news, which is the kingdom of God is near. Notice that the proclamation doesn't change. Those who receive the Lord's messengers are those who receive the news of the kingdom of God. But those, for those cities that do not receive Jesus as messengers, then Sodom will fare better on the day of judgment. Notice how verse 12 puts it of chapter 10. I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The short phrase, on that day, this is a phrase that recurs regularly throughout the whole of the Bible, Old Testament through to the New Testament, and it refers to the last days when God's judgment will come. This helps us understand Jesus' rebuke of James and John back in Luke 9, 54 and 55. So in 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, that the Samaritans had rejected them, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Those that reject the kingdom of God will be punished, but not now. Now is the time where the kingdom of God is being announced. And now is the time that those who receive it will be gathered up. Now is the time, an opportunity for mercy, not judgment. But the fact that the kingdom of God is near and that the people are rejecting this news makes their response all the more culpable. Tyre and Sidon are picked out in verse 14. The prophets spoke great condemnation against them for their pride and their hubris against God. But these cities didn't hear the proclamation of the kingdom of God. But the cities that Jesus has visited, Chorazin, Capernaum, they have seen the signs that the prophet spoke of that the Messiah would do. All those signs that would point to the fact that the Messiah is now here. And yet they've rejected his representatives. So you see that it puts them in a much more precarious position than Tyre and Sidon. These cities have seen and rejected a far superior revelation of God. Therefore, their condemnation will be greater than that of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. We see that as Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, that there's an urgency to his message. And so he needs followers who are ready to drop everything and come now because now the kingdom of God is near. Because of this, there isn't time to go back and bury the dead or say goodbye to the loved ones because the kingdom of God is near. Jesus goes as far as to attempt to put off 
one would-be follower. Having been rejected by the Samaritan village, the Son of Man and his followers become wanderers with no way to lay their heads. And so he warns this would-be follower that that's what he has to look forward to. To follow Jesus isn't for the faint-hearted. And so Jesus has no hesitation to persuade followers not to come if their faith is in any way spurious. Having said all this, his 72 followers arrive back after their preparations joyful. But what makes them happy? How many of the cities have received them? How many of the cities have not received them? It's hard to know how much is given away. What we do know, though, is the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus has given his followers authority over the kingdom of Satan. So much so that we read this in verse 18. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus speaks of the end of the kingdom of Satan, now that the kingdom of God is near. We also have this unusual reference to treading on serpents and scorpions, which raises the question, could this be a reference back to the promise that was once made to the serpent in the Garden of Eden? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But Jesus gives his followers something even greater to rejoice in. Their hope isn't to be put in their newfound power and authority over demons. They are to rejoice in the fact that their salvation is certain. They have left behind everything. They have nowhere to lay their head. They are rejected from cities. They haven't been able to say goodbye to their families. Yet they have a place in the kingdom of God. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so does this shed any light on the question we raised at the beginning? When can we sit back and label our evangelism as a success? Well, I think there are a couple of observations to make. When the 72 arrived in a city, they expected one of two responses. Either they would be received or they would not be received. If they received Jesus' representatives, then the news that the kingdom of God was near was good news. But if they did not receive the people, then they could only look forward to God's judgment on that day. Notice that this isn't to say the word of God has failed. Rather, the word of God has this dividing nature. It separates the sheep from the goats. 
It distinguishes God's people from those who are not. When the word of God is preached, it will always be effective. Another observation to make is Jesus was careful to be realistic to any would-be followers. In fact, he actually goes out of his way to put people off. It's a bold move. You don't find that very often, often, if at all, in our contemporary situation. If anything, the church bends over backwards to make everything as comfortable as possible, to keep people coming or to entice them in, while Jesus wants people to truly understand what it is that they're signing up for. And I believe this relates to what we read in Philippians earlier on. Paul is looking forward. He's anticipating the day of Christ. When Christ will gather up all his people. And he's appealing to the Philippians that they would hold fast to the word of life. He wants them to persevere to the end. Because this is what it all amounts to. The aim of evangelism isn't a full event. It isn't a multiple people attending the follow-up course. It isn't even more people joining the church or, or, or even more people becoming Christians. It's about persevering until the day of Christ. Because everything else is futile if they don't make it until the end. That's why Paul fears that he has run in vain. Jesus, for obvious reasons, was in a different position to Paul. He knew the names of those written in heaven. But he's also very clear what it means to follow him. Yet for everyone who overcomes and everyone who's ready to follow him, he tells them, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that we've been able to reflect upon today. And we pray, Lord, that we would be careful to hold fast to the word of life. That we would realise, as Peter says, where else would we go for you have the words or your son has the words of eternal life. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be those that would rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We continue to rejoice in that as we persevere to the end. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. Now that opportunity has arrived. Yeah, good question. So how would the... the just repeat the question for the recording. How would the uh, readers of the day understood the phrase or in, in what it meant for the kingdom of God is near? Um, well, I think, yes, yeah, so I think this is really good. So I think it's all tied up with the um, term Messiah, Christ, which we know 
Messiah and Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew transliteration of uh, the word. Christ is the Greek transliteration of the word Messiah, which basically means an anointed one. An anointed one simply means the king. And of course, in this context, we think in terms of God's chosen king. So that's all Messiah or Christ really mean. But as, um, obviously from, well, you could go as far back as Judah, as in uh, Genesis 48, a prophecy is made to Judah that king's going to come from his line. It's a bit um, subtle there, but the, the promise is there nevertheless. Then you go to 2 Samuel 7, there's a promise that there'll be a king on David's line and that he'll reign forever. It's not clear whether it will be lots of different people reigning after one another, which is kind of what you'd expect, or one person, which you probably wouldn't expect. <clears throat> so th that's kind of the first sort of thing that they'd be anticipating. And then when you get to the prophets, and both the, the major prophets and the minor prophets, they start to build this picture of what it will be like when the Messiah comes, particularly bearing in the context that they're about to go or are in exile or about to come out of exile, depending on which minor major prophet you're reading. Um, and so this very vivid picture is being painted of the enemies of God being put in their place, there being a, a return to the land where people will grow old and then some. The young people will be safe. There'll be, there'll be no need of walls because the problem with walls is um, it, it means it confines the space and it can't be confined because it's going to be overwhelming in size. But it doesn't matter there's no walls. There'll still be the safety there because God will bring about safety because God will look after it. Um, and it will be a place where the lame... There won't be any lane because they'll all be able to walk because the Messiah's here. And the king will have the power, whatever that looks like, to make the lame walk and the blind see and, the, and that sort of thing. So all that imagery, and it's all imagery that Jesus has been picking up on as we've seen him go through Luke. It's, it's building up this picture of what it means for the kingdom of God to be here. So... When the announcement's made, that's the sort of thing that should be going to the heads. And this is why, uh, going through their heads, this is why, really, the cities are culpable. Because it's self-evident the kingdom of God is here, because the lame can walk and the blind can see, and there's the Messiah, he must be the Messiah. You know, it's unquestionable, because who else could do these things? So for then his representatives to come and then them to reject him, well, there's really no excuse. The Messiah is here. Um, so, yeah, they're the sort of things that should be going through the head. Yeah, we can, we can go a bit further at the triumphal en entrance. They're obviously seeing... Something, we haven't got there yet, but seeing something happen that they think is going to lead to something. Of course, what they don't understand is the, the servant, suffering servant stuff. They can't really make sense of that. How does that fit in? 
Um, yeah, I don't know. Yes, Katie. Yeah, very good question. Yeah, definitely. So just to repeat it for the recording, so how do we approach evangelism, particularly when it's someone who's a close friend or a relative who we're seeing regularly, and do we sort of push them for a response, or are we in danger of going the other way and becoming a bit apathetic and then not really engaging with them, and how do we kind of approach that? Yeah, no, I think that's... I think that is something well worth thinking about because... Like we said, in an evangelistic event, it's kind of you get one stab almost to sort of do the gospel presentation and say, you know, will you take part in this? And then they go their separate ways. And if you haven't got their contact, you've lost them. But particularly when you're thinking in terms of a family member uh, or a close friend, you're seeing them regularly. So I think at that point, you can afford to play the long game, um, which means... It's, it's going to be counterproductive if every time you see them, you're pitting them to the ground and saying, will you repent? Uh, and not that anyone's actually doing that, but that sort of thing, yeah. That's just not going to, ultimately, they're just going to avoid you uh, if you're getting that, that sort of thing. But I think one of the, obviously, you, first of all, I guess you, you lay those ground rules. You know, they, they know you're a Christian, you've, had a go at speaking to them, they might have listened to something you've said about the gospel and you've had an opportunity to talk to them. You've got a bit of a feel for how they uh, take that. Um, and if they've sort of done the whole, yeah, no, don't talk to me about that, then you've kind of got a bit of a feel of, of where you're at and whether they'd welcome. Because obviously you, know, you could say, well, do you want to do the God to make yourself known? And they say no, and all that sort of stuff. So you've got a bit of a feel. So I think at that point, you can afford to take a little bit of a step back and just bide your time. And I think then it's about um, spending time with them, letting them see you in the context of your family as Christians, and that will hopefully start to have an impact in them, uh, on them. Yeah, so they'll st it'll start. Now, and I guess the question then is, you're hoping and looking forward to a point where they other opportunities arise and maybe they do ask questions or something that you've that you've talked to them about does make them think and um, I mean I, I just kind of I think from a personal th thing with family members as your family situation changes and as you get to know them you know particularly thinking in terms of in-laws as you get to the, know them better your relationship with them hopefully has the potential to grow stronger and they might be a little bit more willing to talk to you about stuff and see how your family works and actually that there's something in it. But I guess ultimately, though, there is a sense in that if you've had that initial conversation and they said they don't want to know, then it's not really a neutral position. You know, and, and I think we've got to remember there isn't a neutral position where you're just like, oh, you know, I can take it or leave it. Like, well, then you've left it. There's your decision. That's one's been made. 
So I guess bearing those two things in mind that you've got the opportunity to play the long game and continue that and nurture that relationship and hopefully opportunities will arise. But also at the same time, that initial response isn't neutral, if you see what I mean. I hope that's helpful. Time for one more. Nikki? Good question. Um, yeah, so just to repeat for the recording, so if our aim is that people, per in evangelism, that people persevere to the end, what, how does that impact how we do evangelism? How do we do things differently than maybe what we're doing now? I think first and foremost, it might not necessarily impact what we're doing. It might be more of a mindset. So, I mean, it's quite... I, I think, I mean, it's quite subtle maybe... But I think there's a sense in that just broadening our horizons and our mindset helps to see that there's a sense in that actually the goal is eternal. You know, the goal is that people cross the finishing line, to use the racing analogy. You know, the goal is that they make it to the new heavens and the new earth. So, and then that kind of has sort of subtle implications because, I, th I mean, I do think the spurious faith thing is quite interesting. So, if you go through the Gospels, I mean, I don't know what you do with this. Jesus doesn't get, he, he tells people straight. And if, they, if there's any hint of them not wanting to follow him, he says, well, don't bother them. He didn't quite put it like that, but that sort of thing. Now, you, kind of, you could say, yeah, but he's Jesus, isn't he? That's, as an, there's an appropriateness for him doing that. He's the Messiah, he's come. And also there's an urgency. He, it's in his context of the kingdom of God is near. He's taking these people on the journey from Jerusalem to, to see what happens. So there's a uniqueness to that um, situation. So we could dismiss this and say, well, actually, it's not about us saying to people, are you sure about this? Do you really want to do this? But interestingly, I, I, I spoke to someone ages ago, and they were getting people to do the Christianity Explored course, and he reduced it down from seven to three, or something like that. And he said, I think it's just a big ask to have people give up three sessions. And I'm sat there thinking, the whole point is you're about to ask them to um, you know, take up their cross and follow Jesus. That is a big ask. If they can't give up seven sessions, they're not going to follow Jesus, are they? Uh, give up time for seven sessions. So, but again, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you, do, you, you don't want to then go to the other extreme and say, well, you know, you don't want to come to evangelistic event, don't bother coming then. Um, and actually, we do want to, you know, we, we can find ourselves in positions where we're saying, oh, you know, we're going to put on some tea and cake, come to our house, come to the tea and cake, and then we're going to, we'll take you to the evangelistic event or, or whatever it looks like. You do make it easy for people. But that's to get them into the event and to hear the gospel, isn't it? So it's not, it's not that you're not making it easy for them. Um, 
But then there's the other extreme where actually what you end up doing is saying what you don't want to come to church or you want to leave the church. Well, let me just tone down the message a little bit. Let me just make it a little bit less aggressive and let me make it a little bit more palatable. But then that's quite serious, isn't it? Because then that's what you're doing. What you're doing is you're undermining the word of God, which has this dividing role that is intended to separate the sheep from the goats. That's its role. So by making things more palatable, well, you're robbing the word of God. Well, I don't want to be in that. That's the cat, not the category I want to be in. Um, that's not for me to decide. Certainly not. Um, so I think, I think this is going to be a bit of an ongoing process to be thinking about how we go about this. But ultimately, in, in many respects, nothing changes. It's just... Um, I do think one of the things... We've talked about maybe before, and maybe it's not something that we're so aware of because we don't do it. But one of the things is you get someone into the church and you're like, you become a Christian, excellent, right. Now we need to train you up for doing evangelism. Go and do evangelism. And then the church is basically just a means by which we evangelize. But that isn't the church. It's part of what the church does. It's not all of what the church does. The church is there to equip the saints so that they are mature and so that they persevere to the end. And so, actually, the new Christian who's just walked in, there's a time for building them up and strengthening them up before necessarily sending them out to evangelize, in the sense that they need to know what it is that they have signed up for. They need to have the maturity they need so they can persevere to the end. And so, there's the sense of actually just slightly adjust the way we think of as people join into the church. One of the things that we often say to people when they first arrive, don't get involved, as in, you know, don't play instruments, don't do the sound, don't help with this, that, or the other, don't do anything. Spend a couple of years just coming and listening to the teaching. Be taught, get yourself a really good foundation. You know, once you've got a really good foundation, then you've got a little bit of room to start doing the other things because the foundation's been set. I just taught for a long time. Some of that might have been helpful. Let's stop there because otherwise we could go on all day, or at least I could. Um, in a minute, we're going to spend a bit of time reflecting on the, the bit that we haven't looked at of the passage, just briefly. Uh, but before we do, we're going to stand to sing from the Squalor of Borrowed Stable.